Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is August 3rd, 2015, and this is broadcast number 86. And this is our monthly edition of where we take the questions of the listeners, and we have uh, Dr. Piper, who is the um, president of Greenville Seminary. He answers your questions. And today we have uh, Dr. Ryan McGraw, who's a new faculty member here at the seminary, also tag-teaming with Dr. Pipa, so if they debate back and forth, which it, I'm hoping they do in some sense, uh, with your questions, uh, that's why we're doing it, uh, to try to bring more, um, more of that to the, the discussion. I can't promise that'll happen every month, but uh, we're trying it this month anyway to see how it works out. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as we um, dive into your questions, some of them quite good. Here on Faith and Practice, this is the 15th edition of this segment. So, Dr. Piper and Dr. McGraw, it's good to have you both here in the studio, and uh, I look forward to this discussion. Good questions on tap, so uh, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be here. It's good right. to have Dr. McGraw on campus. Great. Um, we didn't talk off-air about how w the order we were going to take them, so I'm assuming we're just going to uh, go ahead and, and take them uh, as they're yep. written. Yep, we're going to so, follow them as they've come in. Okay, very good. So the first question for today's um, segment is uh, from Israel, uh, and I'm not going to, you can pronounce his last name better than I, I'm sure. You know him. So um, anyway, Israel writes in from Rio de Janeiro, and he's got a question on the subject of eschatology. He asks, the vast majority of Puritans were post-millennialists. But nowadays, the vast majority of Reformed theologians, including those who follow the Puritan doctrine, are amillennialists. Why and how did this happen? How is it, how is it, or what is the prevailing view throughout history? I suspect that's what he means. Well, let's define some terms first, Israel. Postmillennialism, as it was defined historically, probably didn't embrace a lot of Puritans, uh, they were much more defined probably as, and Dr. McGraw can, can correct me on this, they did expect a, a golden age, but this idea of applying millennialism to these various eschatological views really kind of grew out of premillennialism and dispensationalism. I think the terminology is unfortunate. The premillennialists believe that uh, Christ is going to come and establish a physical reign on earth for a thousand years, and so they take the millennial thousand years of Revelation 20, make that a literal time. Omnilists believe that the thousand years are simply the uh, age in which we live from the ascension of Christ until the second return, and that uh, the figure is to be taken uh, as a, a symbolic number, as all the other numbers are in the book of Revelation. Postmillennialism, as I would hold to it, is omnilist in that I believe that we are in the uh, millennial reign. Uh, and what you had within Puritanism would have been what was expected during that millennial reign of Christ. And many of them, and you'll see it in the framing of the uh, larger catechism exposition of the Lord's Prayer, believe that we should pray for the conversion of ethnic Israel and a great worldwide revival. Uh, Ian Murray's book on uh, Puritan hope set that forth then as this uh, time of great gospel prosperity. I believe there'll be such a time in the history of the church. I don't know what Dr. McGraw believes. I'll find out in just a moment. Um, through the Dutch influence, the Reformed Church became more amillennial, uh, believing that, I really didn't define that, so yes, we agree that we're in the age, but uh, a typical 
amillennialist believes that there'll be increases and decreases, and there's no biblical promises that the church will develop and grow um, in ascendancy and victory throughout the age. So at the end of the day, it's pretty much as it was at the beginning of the day. There can be times of revival and reformation. There can be times of decline. Whereas a more modern-day post and I would encourage you to listen to Dr. Curto's lecture on mm-hmm. my blog site, yep. uh, which I think is really well done in explaining uh, more of the, of the modern Reformed view. So, for some reason, uh, Reformed theology, and, and Dr. McGraw might have a better grasp of how this happened, be, uh, particularly when those who really are experts in the Puritans, like Dr. Beakey and others, who have been very instrumental in getting Puritan theology, particularly before the minds of, of the Dutch church and people in the States, tend to be amillennialist. I just think it's kind of been a default position, but I'll pitch the ball to my young friend. I would agree with what Dr. Pipe has said, and in terms of the historical teaching on the millennium, it's very difficult to categorize views prior to the 19th century. And the Puritans themselves didn't necessarily hold any kind of monolithic view. Uh, In particular, I think one thing many people aren't aware of is many Puritans in the 17th century tried to predict dates for the end of the world, Uh, (laughs) notably Thomas Goodwin, who's fairly famous. Uh, Then you have a dear friend of his, John Owen, criticizing him as foolish uh, for doing just that. And, of course, I think Owen was correct. Um, Owen also argued that uh, it was too speculative to say that there would be a thousand-year period of Christ's reign and prosperity of the Church prior to the Second Coming, whereas many other Puritans held that view and looked to that. So it's difficult to distinguish. In terms of my own position, it would be very similar to what Dr. Piper has stated. I do believe the Scripture gives us warrant to see the spread of the gospel worldwide and to be very hopeful and optimistic to see the increase of the church and the gospel. I think in many ways, even with many of the discouraging things we've seen, we actually do see a unprecedented widespread Uh, advance of the gospel even today in many countries of the world that we should thank the Lord for, and we should expect him to do more. Um, And also, perhaps uh, with that, maybe my my picture is fuzzy at the edges in some ways, uh, and I have uh, a bit of agnosticism in terms of what exactly that will look like. I do believe there will be intense persecution, even if it were from a minority of people but that will continue until Christ returns as well. In terms of why people uh, turn towards amillennialism, I can't say that I have a very educated historical perspective on the question, but I can say, at least in some personal experience, most of the people that I've known that have become amillennialists have done so by coming out of a premillennial position of some kind, usually dispensational. And though there are significant differences with the amillennial view, some, though not all of these people, I believe can continue to 
walk and think in some of the pessimistic mm. mentality that they had in premillennialism and carry it over into their version of amillennialism. That's not to say that all amillennialists are like that, but I have seen that happen on, on a popular level. And often uh, because of the historical confusion over the views and, and lack of distinction, sometimes uh, part of the confusion that may have, have led to questions like this are, are people like R.C. Sproul and others have written books on the subject and tried to classify figures in church history under the different millennial views. And I think that's anachronistic and adds more confusion to the discussion than we need. Right, and I, I, I agree 100% with uh, what Ryan has said. Uh, I think that the important thing is, as that book by Ian Murray that was influential in my life so many years ago, A Puritan Hope, is, is to preach the gospel today with hope and believe the Old Testament promises. Uh, my, my problem with pre-mill, with Amil is that it, it so explains away the promises of the Old Testament uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Knight, who happens to be historic pre-mill, said that he was pre-mill because he believes those promises are not faithfully dealt with in the Amil position. I said, well, I agree with you 100%, but the answer is not pre-mill. It's believing that God's going to keep those promises to Christ uh, in this age as well. And with respect to what's going on today, uh, yes, we see in the West a lot of discouraging things, but in the history of the church, at least as God's acted thus far, revival has most often come when the culture was at its nadir. For Brazilian, that means at its lowest point. And we don't know what God will do for us in the West, but what's taking place, for a long time I wasn't that encouraged by China, for example. There were lots of conversions, but you could say the church was a mile wide and inch deep. But the mm. growth of the Reformed faith right now in mainland China mm. is really beyond any human explanation. Mm -hmm. uh, a year and a half ago, 200,000 volumes of the, of the sets of the four-volume of Brockle had already been translated and sold out in Mandarin. I was at a conference in Singapore, and there was a mainland Chinese pastor and a ruling elder from his church that were as Reformed as anybody I know. Mm. And so what we see happening there and eventually, communism will collapse under the weight of the Reformed faith mm -hmm. in the largest country of the world. So, uh, yeah, we must not be myopic and think. And, and in your own country, there's been a growth of, of Reformed theology in Brazil. So that uh, there's a real a good Reformation taking place in the uh, Presbyterian Church, and others are coming to the Reformed faith. So we must take the long view and not the short view. And it might not be in our generation, but that's we live to be faithful. Outstanding. Thank you, gentlemen, for a good, thorough answer um, to this question. Uh, the follow, following question comes from all the way over down under from Australia, from Isaac. And he writes in and asks the question related to the Sabbath. Um, he asks, in relation to Romans 14 and keeping the Sabbath, if Christians are still morally obligated to keep one day in seven as the Christian Sabbath, why does Paul suggest in Romans 14, 1 to 12, that a believer may, quote, esteem all days alike, unquote, and not be condemned for that? Now, it just so happens for the listeners' own information that we have two men in studio today that both wrote books dealing with the Lord's Day. Dr. Piper wrote one that preceded uh, Dr. McGraw's by, I don't know how many years, quite a few. And um, so you should get a very good and thorough answer to this question. So, gentlemen, 
Go ahead, Dr. McGraw. Well, he's pointing to me, but his book deals with the issue more directly. Um, maybe I'll, I'll start by giving a brief answer and allow Dr. Piper to expand it and follow up. One of the primary questions, in my view, in Romans 14 is the relationship of Jews and Gentiles in the early church. And one of the most obvious difficulties that faced the fledgling New Testament church was what is their relationship to the Old Testament days of worship and ceremonies. And so as Paul, in the preceding context in 9 through 11, is dealing with a question of why did so many Jews not believe the gospel and addresses that question, uh, now he is dealing with some of the practical pastoral consequences of Jews and Gentiles coexisting. And of course, in the Jewish calendar, there were many days that needed to be observed. Um, in the New Testament, especially in Acts 15, the question comes up regarding circumcision and some of the ceremonies of the Mosaic Law. And without going into the details of that, the bottom line is that the Gentile Christians were not to be troubled with them. But at the same time, the New Testament church, we could say, bore patiently with or put up with the practices of the Jewish church or the Jewish believers at that time for a temporary period. And so we see frequently in the New Testament that people are going to the synagogues as well as on the first day of the week gathering for worship. And later on, say in the writing of the book of Hebrews, now participation in temple worship and its ceremonies is virtually equated with apostasy. So there's a gradual transition period. I believe the primary intent of Romans 14 is not to reject the fourth commandment, but to deal with the differences between Jews and Gentiles over the festival days. Right. I agree as well. And um, if you look, Isaac, and it's nice to hear from you, Isaac. Uh, wish you'd come back up here. But anyway, uh, if you look at the three contexts of the three passages, Romans 14, Galatians 4, and then Colossians 2, all of them are in the context of what Dr. McGraw has just uh, pointed out, of uh, Old Testament uh, regulations, food laws, uh, these interrelationships uh, between uh, uh, Jewish converts and Gentile converts. And Galatians, for example, makes it very clear that we're talking about ceremonial law because right before verse 12, or, uh, or excuse me, verse 10, you observe days, months, and seasons, and years. He's talked about turning back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Well, in the context of Paul, he's using that language to describe bondage and the ceremonial law. And you come to Colossians 2, and in my book, that's the section I use to define the other two because I think it's uh, it's uh, really lays out the the principle in verses 16 and 17 therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink so obviously we got food laws at play here or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a sabbath day things which are a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to Christ so Paul is talking about Old Testament regulations that point to Christ. Even the seventh-day Sabbath, though a moral law, 
pointed to the Savior to come, as, for example, the Catechism is very clear. And so when Christ came, all of the Old Testament observances would be fulfilled in his perfect work. Now, these three phrases, new moon, Sabbath day, and festivals, are this is a technical um, phrases, come right out of the law. And it's used at least three times in the Old Testament to talk about the uh, high holy days of the festivals, all of the various ceremonial Sabbaths connected with that, the seventh-day Sabbath, and then the new moon observance as well. And all of those prefigured things about Christ. You could take each of the festivals and show how they were fulfilled in Christ. The new moon probably relates to Jeremiah chapter 31 and 33, uh, the promise that uh, the moon would pass away before God's covenant would not be kept, and of course the uh, seventh-day Sabbath pointing to the Savior to come. When Christ came then, that was all fulfilled. But the moral principle of the fourth commandment was not ceremonial, and it, uh, because it is a moral principle, abides, and thus the principle remains, but the day, uh, the day was changed. And so, as Dr. McGraw said, the apostles were very patient. In fact, Paul himself, until the, his death, granted liberty to participate in Jewish ordinances, which he did for the sake of the gospel. So he was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem by Pentecost. He agrees to pay for vows that he and other Christians had taken and go to the temple. That's why he was uh, arrested, because he was accused of bringing uh, Gentiles into the, into the temple. And so, uh, but once the temple was destroyed, that which we read in Hebrews then comes to its full form, and the church no longer would even tolerate that. So bring it up to date, we have a real problem with Messianic Judaism today because it's going, it's skipping back through Hebrews into an apostolic age when the temple was still standing. If somebody wants to do a Passover for didactic reasons, uh, that's one thing. But to observe a Passover or to observe Purim or any of these other activities, I think that that's something that clearly in progression of revelation has ceased, but mm -hmm. the fourth day has not ceased. Also, maybe one thing to add briefly, um, just to augment this discussion, is in the Shorter Catechism, when the divines dealt with the fourth commandment, rather than immediately jumping into what it looks like to keep the weekly Sabbath, the first thing they begin with is the fourth commandment requireth the keeping holy to God sets set times as he's appointed in his word. And then they add expressly one whole day in seven, etc. And part of what's significant there and what's reflected in the language in Colossians is the term Sabbaths there is, is plural, or refers to, to more than one. Um, and when you look at the text in uh, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement is referred to as a Sabbath. When you go to Leviticus 23, the other feast days there are referred to Sabbaths. And uh, when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first commandment deals with the object of worship, the second deals with the way in which we worship him, and then, of course, the third deals with the attitude towards his name or his glory. And then the fourth commandment deals with the time that God has set apart for worship. And under this principle, what we're recognizing is that the fourth commandment in the Old Testament 
would have mandated the seventh-day Sabbath, but also the Passover and the Day of Atonement and all mm-hmm. of these other feast days under the single commandment. And now, under the new covenant, the same commandment forbids all of those feast days because God has no longer appointed them in his word. And so we could do the same thing with the ceremonies in relation to the second commandment and the principles that govern worship. So we need to recognize that that's what Paul is dealing with. So the term Sabbath is broader than simply the weekly Sabbath, but also uh, reflects this, this, I believe, correct and biblical interpretation of the essence of the fourth commandment. Good point. Well, very good, gentlemen. It's, it's a little bit more difficult for me on this side of the microphone to listen and know when to get in because you, I don't know if you're ever going to interact or, or disagree or, or anyway. But, yeah, very good question. I think this is one of the questions that we get, I think, Dr. Piper, pretty often on the program, which tells me that people are at least thinking about the issue. Right? They're thinking about the issue enough to write in and seek advice and, well, and again, other kinds of input. Well, again, to get back to the previous question, I think this is an area where we're seeing slowly but surely mm-hmm. a reformation in the church. Yep. And we need to pray for it because, as, as Dabney and Hodge pointed out, uh, as long as the church is away from this command, we're not going to have right piety or right doctrine. Yep. Yeah. It's, so there's an encouraging element to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, by far. All right, pressing on, and then uh, we'll take a, a brief break so I can do some things that I didn't do up front that I usually do uh, just to alert people of some things. But um, in the interest of time, we'll move on to the third question. It's uh, Shelley writes in from Houston, Texas, and it, this is a question on the uh, on evening worship uh, on the Lord's Day, and it's and she asks, with evening worship becoming less and less popular with individuals and congregations as a whole. Could you, in good conscience, vote or nominate a man for an office who doesn't regularly attend evening worship or whose family doesn't regularly attend? That's one question. I think there's probably more here. But are there good excuses for non-regular attendance? That's really a second question. We are just very old school when it comes to the church attendance, but we don't want to be legalistic about it either. We would like to be right but humble at the same time. Admittedly, it's hard. It's a hard balance for us. I just had a good pastor as a child youth who drummed the importance of church attendance into my head. For that, I will always be grateful. I happen to have been that pastor. So there you go. In the interest of full disclosure, <laughs> here on the podcast, we hold nothing back. Not just um, pastor, but she was like a daughter. Well, I was going to ask Dr. Piper if he happened to know this uh, this listener because uh, he pastored in that area, so I, you know, anyway. Anyway, uh, Shelley, uh, thank you uh, for the question, or the series of questions, I'll start, and Dr. McGraw can interrupt any point that he wants to. But I'm starting because I'm still an essential pastor. Uh, normally, I would not nominate or vote for a man who is not regular in evening worship. But let me back up, just remind our listeners of uh, the theological inference for a second service. And uh, uh, I start with Psalm 92 which is a Sabbath, a psalm for the Sabbath, and it speaks of declaring your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Now that ties into the morning and evening offering, which was doubled on the Sabbath. So I, don't, I wouldn't say that I could dogmatically assert from this that we should have two services, but this is how the church has understood keeping the whole day holy. But second, 
uh, we understand, if we really understand what's taking place in worship, and that we are in a special way in the presence of God, and that particularly in the reading and preaching of the word, Christ is speaking with a living voice. There are spiritual reasons, uh, as this is the primary means of grace. Why would we want to deprive ourselves of it? Before I go on, do you want to add any arguments for having a second service? Not particularly. I mean, I, I like the way you've stated it, and I would say that there's good precedent for two worship services. I wouldn't want to uh, mandate it in every case. And part of what I'm thinking of is, at least in the 17th century, uh, in, some, in some cases, depending on the size of the congregation, uh, many Puritans actually didn't have two services unless there were two ministers. Uh, because they viewed the the burden of it too great, and of course, um, most of us or many of us, I should say, uh, do the two services. But that was one thing they they brought up. Another thing could be uh, by reason of travel and distance to the church and the difficulty of gathering people. And in that case, they would usually end up having about a three-hour worship service to yeah. make up the difference. And so, uh, I don't think most listeners are going to want to opt for that. But, uh, but I think the, the overarching principle as well, and at the risk of sounding somewhat pragmatic, is that the fourth commandment demands dedicating the whole day to worship. And unless a family is particularly disciplined mm. in terms of using the day well, especially with their children, um, we were in a circumstance, for example, where uh, we didn't have an evening worship at one point, and there was really nowhere for us to go locally, and this is many years ago, and so we would listen to uh, various pastors on sermon audio in the evening, because that was really the only option we had at the time. Um, but it's always best to be with the congregation of God's people, because that's where Christ has particularly promised his presence and the power of the Spirit to work in the means of grace. And so we ought to covet that time. And so perhaps instead of simply asking the question, uh, is this required of us and is this mandated, maybe we should turn it around first and say, uh, what is our attitude towards public worship? Right. And do we covet the special presence of Christ enough uh, to go? And I think it was Spurgeon who once said to somebody who, who told him that they were simply sitting home, for the second service, he said something to the effect of, why would you sit at home when Christ is preaching down the street? Yeah. And it's a, it's a valid thing for us to consider and ask, ask ourselves where are our hearts in relationship to worship. And there are other complicating factors and, and difficulties, but I'll hold off on that yeah. in, for a moment. Yeah, let's, before we do your first question, let's go to the second one. Are there good excuses uh, for non-regular attendance at a second service? Well, there are. Distance would be one. Uh, particularly today when sometimes a family has to drive an hour to get to a, a Reformed worship service. Um, health is another. Uh, it might be a family situation. Uh, so th there, can be, there can be extenuating circumstances, and when a family comes into a church, then they need to be straightforward. Another reason uh, for a, a family attending is you take a vow to support the work and worship of the church to the best of your ability. And so if a family thinks that they are not going to do that, they need to tell the elders on the front end and not take that vow. So, But even with distance, um, 
I think churches need to get more creative. And some churches, you know, will have the service and then eat together and have a second service uh, and go home. If that's the only way to do it, or maybe do that every other week or once a month or whatever. And so there can, there can be those things. Or a man might have a, a wife who is uh, ill and is going to need to stay home at times and help with the children um, or to help her. So there can be those providential circumstances. So uh, normally I would not want to see a man as an elder if he lives in the area and he or his family are not consistent in evening worship. If he lives out of the area, so let's say you got really a good qualified elder who lives an hour away and he's willing to drive in and do pastoral visitation, he's willing to come to session meetings, but it would end up the Lord's Day wouldn't be any kind of physical or spiritual rest for him if he turned around and had to come back. And so he might say, I will do this as often as I can. So there can be those circumstances, but if the man is in the area where the congregation is and he uh, is not regularly or his family is not regularly attending evening worship, then no, I, I personally uh, would not vote for him or want to see him uh, as an elder so i don't think it's legalistic though i just think it again what the elder is to be the example to the flock we're supposed to be able to say to the congregation even though we're sinners you follow me as i follow christ now the very first step of that is i'm i, I humble myself and if i sin to you or in front of you i ask your forgiveness uh, that's maintaining a, a, a clear conscience but i've got to set those patterns and so if the elders are not at evening service the deacons aren't there you can't expect the flock to be there with any kind of of consistency. Yeah, and when we think about the times of worship services, the number of worship services, prayer meetings, uh, other things along these lines, we need to recognize that it's the session who decides ultimately when the meetings are going to be held and if members of that session are not participating in the meetings, then it conveys the idea that they're really not worthwhile. Mm. And so if the elders are to be showing the flock what a normal Christian life looks like, a normal church life, then how can they expect the people to participate when they're not participating? And again, I think the, the broader issue is, uh, like the old saying goes, where there's a will, there's a way. And even in one of the circumstances that Dr. Piper just gave, we had an elder in Sunnyvale, mm -hmm. um, and if you're listening, you know who you are, and he uh, did live an hour away, and what he ended up doing was uh, making arrangements with another family in the church, and he and his wife would stay with them for the afternoon on the Lord's Day, and he was always there at evening worship. And so he found a way to do it and still effectively participate and minister to the church. Right. And we also had a family in the church with a disabled daughter, and they lived an hour away, and it took hours to get her ready in the morning. And in the afternoons, uh, they had to take her home. She started to get agitated, and, and they took care of her. And they weren't able to, to drive back to evening worship and spend the time to get her ready again. But what they did was they found a local church near them that wasn't necessarily something they would be comfortable joining. 
but they wanted to take what they could get, and the word was preached there. And they still made the effort to go to an evening worship service, not because someone told them to be there, but because they wanted to be there and they valued the glorious privilege of public mm. worship. So the broader issue is really uh, what is our heart's desire right. with respect to worship. And Shelley, you remember we did the same thing in Houston. <clears throat> we had two or three families uh, away, and we would have uh, we had a rotation mm-hmm. where different ones of us. So usually only had one family in a month would host that family for the afternoon. They'd come in, meal, take a nap, uh, read. Uh, and so, which is something churches ought to be doing. When you've got families that live away, people ought to be offering. Why don't you spend the day with us? And I, I know the family in California as well. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's very important. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, great question, Shelley, and I appreciate you writing in and listening to the program. Um, just uh, for my guests' uh, sake, we have about 26 minutes left in the live portion of the broadcast, um, just so you know, and we still have quite a few questions to get through, hopefully, Lord willing. So anyway, uh, let me really quick, before we press on to the next question on the, on the hot topic issue of the day, the same-sex marriage decision from the Supreme Court, there's actually two questions uh, this week, or this month, related to that uh, discussion, or that decision from the Supreme Court of the United States. Let me just remind everybody that you can find this podcast on the web at confessingourhope.com. If you do not yet have the GPTS mobile app, then you should get it if you would like it. It is free on the Google Play Store as well as in that other store. Um, I think it's called the Apple Store or something to that effect. Uh, But you can get it either way. It's available for both platforms. And uh, no funny looks across the table yet, please, sir. Um, Those who who are listening know what I'm talking about. Who, Anyway. Um, But there's the two avenues by which you can get the program. You can also uh, go to our website, the seminary website, gpts.edu, if you want to ask or answer, have answered questions about the seminary. You can go there uh, and write in if you need to, info at gpts.edu. And always, as always, you can write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. We do this faith and practice segment once a month, and if we do use your question on the air, you will receive from the Banner of Truth a $10 off coupon for good quality uh, material, books, whatnot, that you would like to purchase. So we encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, There's really no effort involved except write in uh, your questions either through Twitter or through the form there on the confessingourhope.com website. So that's the stuff that I usually say in the beginning. This time I did it in the middle. Maybe (coughs) that means more people will hear it. I don't know. Trying something new all the time. All right, we're ready. Are you ready, gentlemen? We're going to press on. Next question. Um, and ahead. I think maybe for the sake of, uh, they, oh, good. They're, they happen to be right on top of each other, so that makes it very, very simple. Jerry writes in from Taylor, South Carolina, which is right here where we are uh, on the issue of same-sex marriage. And it's really um, four questions. Um, so here they are. Uh, let's, what? Uh, let's deal with uh, his first question and then the next questioner. Do you want, okay, 1A and then the anonymous? Yeah, and then we'll get back to Jerry's 2 and 3 maybe next time. Oh, I want to deal with 3 today. All right, uh, so, so you want, want to do three. 1A, 1B, and then the anonymous? We'll do 1A and then 1 below and then go back to 3. All right, so we're skipping. 1A and B and then anonymous and then 3. Okay, so we're skipping 1B and 2. No, I, I'm sorry. I said 1A and B. You were right. Doesn't... Go back up, please. Yeah. 1A and B and... Anonymous. Anonymous. Then three. three. Okay. 
I think we're straight. So the first question is, what should the church do in response to the recent same-sex marriage ruling by the Supreme Court to legalize marriage in all 50 states? You want to just take that now, or are we going to keep going? Well, let's just do one at a time. Um, I think that uh, we cannot capitulate on either the definition of marriage or performing uh, marriages. I, I heard today that there are some people that said, "Well, this is a state thing, and so it's. You know, I mean, it's 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 outside the church, and you know, it doesn't really matter." But I don't think that is 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 a proper way to approach this. It's a sin. God alone can define marriage. So the church needs to be very clear in its response that this is unbiblical. Uh, you know, in a sense, the Southern Baptists did this year what I wish that my denomination and other Presbyterian denominations had done, and that is uh, file a very fine biblical statement uh, about marriage. And I think the, the Southern Baptist statement erred when it said that we shouldn't be angry there's a righteous anger, and I think as Christians, this is a place for righteous anger and indignation that the Supreme Court uh, would do this. Um, so the church in the first place has to protect itself, which means, and I've been encouraging our graduates and other ministers, the elders need very stringent policies about who may be married. It must at least be one member of the church. They must go through a certain period of premarital counseling. The other person must be a member of an evangelical church as well and get those kind of things in place and don't budge on them. But get the session to do it. Do it when there's no case before you. This is in the church uh, rules, and I think we have to do that. The same with the, you know, we do not let anybody rent our auditorium for a wedding. We Only church members can, can be uh, can be married in, in this building and uh, things like that. I think we get very specific uh, specific rules. Uh, politically, I, we're going to see some interesting discussions in terms of Christians. Uh, history goes around. In the 19, 1830s, there was the big battle between Andrew Jackson and John C. Calhoun of South Carolina on nullification. Um, Calhoun lost that time around. Is there a place for the states uh, to say we are not going to uh, uh, obey the Supreme Court at this point? Calvin has a very good principle about civil obedience and disobedience. And he says the lesser magistrate may lead in proper biblical basis against a higher magistrate. And so for a state to say uh, we're not going to recognize in this state um, same-sex marriage would be an interesting thing. Of course, most states will buckle because of federal money that comes in. But I, I think we haven't seen the end of what could happen and should happen uh, at, at that level of argument. I'm actually writing a little piece uh, on the uh, – I'll tip my hand – about its proposal for um, – uh, what do I call it, uh, heterosexual marriage zones. <laughs> so we've got sanctuary cities, and we've got two states that break the federal law having marijuana. So I think as long as the federal government is allowing that to happen, why don't we have states that say we only recognize in this state heterosexual marriage? So I think there's things that we could do uh, and ought to do. Um, 
and individual Christians then, I think it obviously to pray and plead with God because at the end of the day it's the gospel only that's going to change this, not politics. But that doesn't mean we're quietest. And so we should exercise our political responsibilities and those who have a calling to be more involved. Some are involved in pro-life. Some would be involved in this. Uh, but we don't roll over and play dead. I think that the church was really behind and Christians behind the eight ball on uh, pro-life and learned late, learn those lessons now. Now we're making progress. Um, not a place for the church's involvement, but for individual Christians to be involved. And that time, the reason I wanted to do number three here, and we'll come back to this, but there's an overture going around now for a day of prayer and fasting. And that's, I think, the most important thing that we can do. But I'll pitch the ball over here. I agree wholeheartedly with uh, Dr. Piper's answer, and uh, the only thing that I would add is is more of a pastoral caution to churches and individual Christians, is whenever there's any notorious sin such as homosexuality that comes to the forefront in the public consciousness and, and in that of the church, we need to be aware of singling out just that sin as though it's our primary issue that we're concerned about mm -hmm. and fighting against. There are a great list of sins that Paul deals with in Romans 1, and homosexuality is only one of them. He mentions other things like being disobedient to parents and ultimately not retaining God in our thinking is the root cause of them all. And we need to be careful in evangelizing or dealing with people in the homosexual community uh, not to convey the idea that their homosexuality is ultimately their problem, but really we're aiming at the heart and the need to be reconciled to God and to unravel this thinking, not because that sin itself is what condemns them, but because they're sinners and this is simply a symptom of the broader problem. And so we do need to avoid polarizing as we address the issue. Right, and I agree with that as well. You know, the church was silent too long on no-fault divorce, fornication, adultery. Adultery, as I view it, is the most serious violation of the Seventh Commandment because God takes the most serious sin in the headings of each of those ten words. Uh, and the church, if the church had had the same vehemency about adultery and fornication as it has had on homosexuality, I think it would have a greater, uh, would not, could not as justly be accused of homophobia as it has been. And so, and yeah, we deal with sinners as sinners, and uh, we all have wretched sins that we must uh, be delivered from, and only Christ is that power. So I, I like that point as well. And we, we got to we want to protect the right of the church. We want to see our nation uh, uh, returned to a level of of biblical morality. But there's a lot of other areas that are involved. I, I would say a thing that pastorally that's actually behind a lot of this is uh, computer pornography. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Until the church gets people much more accountable, there was a survey done by a professor at North Texas University in Denton that uh, seemed to show that the reason so many men now were no longer opposing homosexuality or same-sex uh, marriages was because of their addiction to pornography. It makes good sense. Their conscience is um, 
desensitized. A, B, they are looking for kinkier and kinkier ways of satisfaction, and the computer can't give you that. Only real-life relationships between a husband and wife can give you that kind of satisfaction. So they're, they're looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places, and so they're going to close their eyes to everything. So there's a lot of other things that we need to be aware of. And, for example, actually it was uh, an elder in, uh, in Pastor Dr. McGraw's church in California that encouraged me to be sure that all of our faculty are every semester talking to students and asking them point blank about their use of the computer in pornography. Uh, this, it's huge uh, in, in the church, and we want to be uh, dealing with that as well. I think I read somewhere that 50% of all ministers are hooked on it in some level. Man. I don't, I don't know if that can be... I'm, I'm always leery about giving those kinds of statistics, but that's what I've seen, and I'm not 100% sure that's, that's accurate, but it, it's probably up there. Anyway, um, you wanted to go to this next question. Anonymous writes in, given the recent SCOTUS decision, that's the Supreme Court of the United States, um, how should the church handle those that are legally married as homosexuals, that is, legally in the sense of the state or the federal government, and then, obviously, they're not married biblically, and then come to faith in, in Christ and seek to join the church? How do you respond to that as elders, and how do you deal with that? Well, that's pretty much a, a non-brainer, isn't it? We recognize that uh, they're not married in God's sight, that it's a sin, and so part of the mark of repentance is that they forsake the practice of that sin and cease that uh, relationship. And again, it's not just homosexuals. I, I, a couple I'm very close to still today that uh, came to my study, oh, 25, 28 years ago, wanted to be married. I never say no on the telephone because I want to witness to them. So, you know, we're going over this and talking about Christ. And I say, we're not so bad, you know. And I says, oh, tell me, it seems to me you're living together. Is that right? Well, yeah, it is. Well, you know what the Bible says about that? Mm -hmm. No. So I explained to them. They repent. It's the only time in my life this has ever happened. Right there in my study, they repented. Embrace Christ. And then I said, you know, and I was go away to see if your repentance is genuine. Brett, you've got to move out tonight. You can come live with me. But he said, oh, my mom lives in town. I'll go live with her. Hmm. And so I think it's the same regardless whether it's a fornication relationship, an adulterous relationship, or a homosexual relationship. Part of repentance is you forsaking the sinful relationship. And, of course, they're not married in God's sight. And so... You could never even receive it as a marriage, let alone allow them to continue to live in that sinful relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, I agree with that. And, and just based on some recent conversations I have, my suspicion is that part of this question might be, how does the church deal with their legal status in terms of counseling them? Like, do they have to sue for a divorce um, uh -huh. and that type of thing? That's a question I've heard come up frequently and uh, hmm. and adds a more difficult dimension to the question I believe I think, you, I think you'll find that, that that perhaps is probably behind the question probably is is why it's anonymous can I ask Dr. Piper that question <laughs> you can ask him anything you want <laughs> I'm gonna throw that's it the, the nice first. thing about having the group answering on some of these hot these are hot topic issues no question I'm, I'm talking off the top of my head. I could change my mind tomorrow. But uh, 
So that was a that was a disclaimer, by the way, for those who are listening but live. At this in. point, and I love the plurality of elders and the council of elders. But at this point, uh, because they're not biblically married, I would not want to recognize the institution of homosexual marriage by suing for divorce. And I would tell them that, uh, no, you don't get divorced because you're not married. Now, if only one of the parties is legally married and is converted, then they might have to uh, sue for divorce because the other person believes that, you know, this is a legally binding relationship. But this is going to present a problem in itself, and I've already heard some commentators start to touch on this. Uh, Children? I, no, I don't know the percentages, but very few homosexual relationships are ever, ever permanent. No, it's, I've heard the same thing. It's, it's much, much worse than the heterosexual relationships. So you're going to be seeing, this is going to throw a whole new thing into, I mean, the unintended consequences of what the Supreme Court has done are numerous. And this is one of them. And if you add... These people are used to meeting the younger guy and, and, and changing right. partners tomorrow. If you add children into the mix, because oh. many homosexual couples will and adopt children, and then they come to faith in Christ, and of course we've already had that, we've already answered that or dealt with that, then we have a custody battle on our hands in relationship to those children yeah. and what happens with them. And this thing just gets uglier and uglier the further yeah. it goes. So, yeah, they would have to go to court if they were children. Yep. If both of them, if they're both converted and they would agree that one of them would, would take the children or put them up. Well, you hate to put children for adoption at that point. I mean, yeah, it's going to be, it's, if this isn't by God's grace overturned soon, it's going to just be awful. And the reason why I passed this back is uh, I was a little bit relieved to hear you say that uh, you're still <laughs> thinking about it as well, because that's uh, where I am. Because there is the aspect of um, not recognizing it as a genuine marriage, which I agree with wholeheartedly. But in terms of the state and the law, there are also a lot of other implications that the state has attached to marriage and a married status. Hmm. And would we need to legally terminate the marriage because of those things while simultaneously not recognizing that it's a genuine hmm. marriage? And that's why my, my thought is I need to think through this a little bit more. Um, but uh, I, I agree generally with what you've said. I just have to think through some of those other implications. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think it's going to be a really messy can of worms. That's why we want South Carolina to uh, say no to same-sex marriage. <laughs> this is this is on topic, but not related to any, any question that came in. I mean, not specifically a question that came in to the program, but I'd heard, was it Alabama, that has decided to get out of the marriage business altogether or think contemplating it? One state has maybe it was Alabama judge Moore simply say we're not going to give marriage licenses anymore you right get married. so they stay out of the corner hmm. it's but, interesting uh, interesting he also, situation he first told his his judges you don't have to give a marriage license to right right and he's and, uh he's a nullification guy there has been surprisingly so, Mike Huckabee Mike Huckabee was in fact the way yeah, I learned yeah. this thing it passed was Huckabee's article that we're not going to give in to the Supreme Court on this yep. because this is unconstitutional. Um, well, there has been fallout in the civil realm already where some clerks have not uh, have resigned their position because they will not give out 
Right, licenses which and, is surely the thing the most with the greatest integrity is the lady in Arkansas. That's right. That's the one that uh, said, "I just resign." You know, you're going to lose a lot of good people because of that. That's right. Now let's let's press on. We we have about eight minutes left, and and I do want to get to the third part of this question. Right. Is in uh, and it is actually interesting in God's providence. And I'm sure Dr. Pipe is going to explain it. Is fasting a duty for the individual Christian, or is it optional? And if a duty, how often should we practice, uh, be practicing it, and for how long? Okay. It is a duty, and not just a duty. It's a means of grace. We often miss this part of uh, Christ's discussion in Matthew chapter 6. He deals with wrong kinds of fasting, as he does with giving of alms and praying. But with the right kind of fasting, he says... When you fast, you anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So just as almsgiving and prayer are means of grace, fasting is a means of grace, and the church across the board, and particularly I'll say the Reformed Church, has been really remiss in uh, the practice of fasting, both private individual fasting and corporate fasting. It's actually in the Westminster Directory of Worship. Is it in the PCA Directory of Worship? I think it is. OPCA Directory so. of Worship? I think it's in the PCA. And um, so, now as to, and then Paul makes it quite clear, for example, in First <clears throat> Corinthians 7, that couples will fast. My wife and I finally have done that. And it was really quite a blessing to fast and pray together. I've done it privately, but to fast and pray together. There's two primary purposes for fasting. One is to give intensity to seek uh, petitions and seek God's will, and the other is in mourning. The one required fast in the Old Covenant was the Day of Atonement, and that it's called humiliation. Uh, it works because it's the person, it's the image of God. And just as uh, spiritual and emotional states can affect your appetite, well, the string op works the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So you can affect yourself spiritually by your appetite. Mm -hmm. So we should use it uh, in important times of seeking God's face, of discerning God's will, or confessing sin. And the church should uh, call times of prayer and fasting. And that relates to the uh, SCOTUS decision. A um, young friend of ours in Savannah River Presbytery's session brought an uh, overture to the Presbytery calling on the churches on August the... I'm trying to find it. You can see it on our website and on my website as well. 24th. 24th. Whatever that Wednesday is, the 24th or 26th of August, a day of prayer and fasting about this whole uh, marriage, the 26th, this whole uh, marriage uh, debacle. And so increasingly churches now are heeding this call. We're hoping other sessions and other presbyteries will pick it up around uh, the nation. What my uh, church where we are is doing is the day will be people privately in prayer and fasting, and then uh, we have a church supper on Wednesday nights, that'll be a, a feast to break the fast, but the prayer meeting will be devoted exclusively then to praying as well uh, uh, for this. And I know that uh, Second Prez is doing that, Woodruff Road's doing that. I'm sure that the OPC Church here is going to do that as well. So we want uh, individual Christians to join in that day, even if their churches don't, and get as many churches as you can to uh, join in that day. 
Let me try to run through a couple things very quickly. Um, there are many errors that we're liable to with prayer and fasting. The most common one, as Dr. Piper indicated, is simply not doing it and omitting the practice. Um, there are also errors on the other side, though, because when we begin to practice fasting, we don't know how to do it. Mm. And one of the key things implicit in Dr. Piper's answer that I want to bring to the forefront is that in the Bible, fasting was not simply abstinence from food, but a dedication to prayer. And this is why, for example, fasting is coupled alongside Sabbath keeping in Isaiah 58, mm -hmm. because it's a time dedicated to seeking the Lord, uh, not in the joy of Sabbath worship, but in the humiliation of fasting and prayer. Uh, and coming before the Lord in that way. I've known people that began practicing fasting um, in two congregations I've been in now where there have been men who have fasted for over 20 days straight. And that's an opposite extreme, and I don't believe a biblical one. The most common fast that we see, especially in the Old Testament, is fasting until evening, which reflects some of the examples that Dr. Piper has just given. We can uh, create serious long-term health problems by excessive fasting, such as some of the medieval doctors did, even some of the Great Awakening evangelists like George Whitfield. Uh, we want to avoid that kind of extreme. There are other health issues that we could uh, go into that we don't have time for uh, here, but in a short period of time, fasting is, is not only not unhealthy, but actually good. And so as long as we understand it in its proper parameters, we need to pursue it as a means of humbling ourselves for the purpose of prayer. We need to do it individually. We need to do it corporately. Another vital uh, example in the New Testament consistently throughout Acts is fasting and prayer over ordinations. And that's something we desperately need to recover. I was mention that. Um, and also, since my, my time is about out, uh, let me just mention one brief thing. Well, um, tell you what, hold that thought. Let me say goodbye to our live listeners, and then you can continue. Okay. Because we don't want to lose that, and it'll be recorded for those who want to listen to the podcast later. You get the fuller thing. I don't want to be locked down just because we have to close up here in one minute. So just for those who are listening live, we do thank you for listening this way. Um, we're, we're constantly working on trying to make it a little easier so that um, – uh, we get it all in in an hour, but, you know, we're, anyway, we're doing the best we can. But if you want more information about the podcast, go to our website, confessingourhope.com. And, of course, this program will be uh, released in its entirety um, in a future date, so you'll get the back end of it, whatever you're going to miss of what Dr. McGraw is saying. So, um, anyway, sorry for the interruption, but please, Dr. McGraw, continue. <laughs> Oh, the only thing I, I was going to add is uh, Dr. Beakey and I are co-editing a series on cultivating biblical godliness, and one of our recent contributions is a fairly substantial booklet by Danny Hyde on the practice of prayer and fasting. And it's very inexpensive, and it's meant to look at this partly through historical examples, but predominantly through Scripture. Um, I've edited Danny's booklet thoroughly, and I think it's a useful contribution and a good starting place for people who don't have a lot of uh, money or time to read to get into this important subject. Mm -hmm. And I was simply going to add, before anyone's going to do that, uh, Samuel Miller has an excellent booklet. Mm -hmm. Brockle has a good section on fasting, as does Calvin in the Institutes. And so uh, there are good other good resources there, and uh, we need to practice it and 
you men who are pastors, and a lot of you listen to this, you need to not just do it, but you need to be teaching your congregations as well. Yeah, and, and Danny uh, cites all those resources too. So. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm sure he would. <laughs> That's good. Get them all in one place. Very right. good. I know Dr. Piper does uh, the fasting and prayer, um, especially yeah. for those who are about to be ordained. Um, well, that's something else. And, and, I'm glad um, you mentioned that because I keep telling people the New Testament pattern is fasting and prayer at ordinations, and I can't get anybody to do it. So I'm getting the look. Anyway, <laughs> yes, so I can, I can assume that on August 24th you'll be doing that. You can assume that as well as Jim McCarthy's the next week. Oh, August 23rd right. for Jeff and the uh, 29th for... Yeah, Jim, Jim McCarthy, for those who don't know, is a recent graduate of the seminary is Jeff um, and is um, coming up for ordination. And Jeff, Jeff graduated a couple years back. He also is going to be ordained uh, here shortly. Um, I, and I have um, the privilege, actually, of being on his commission, so I'm really looking forward to that whole process. So um, I don't want to belabor this either, but uh, just one thing that I think is important to add with prayer and fasting is, again, another extreme people go to is then they say, well, we're going to have uh, annual days of prayer and fasting and, and implement this in our church, and it's going to be the same recurring holiday. And I think that's an error as well, because we just talked about the Lord's Day, and the fourth commandment requires the keeping holy to God, the set times appointed mm -hmm. in His Word. So we don't have the warrant to issue a command for a recurring holiday, even a fast day, and when we fast, we need to recognize that it needs to meet the occasion. And so our fasting is going to be determined by providence and the events that recur. Mm. And just one biblical example would be in Zechariah chapter 7, if I could paraphrase the whole encounter. The people had begun annual fasts on three occasions mm -hmm. during the seven year, 70 years of exile, and at the end of the exile, they asked the Lord, should we still keep these annual fasts? And in effect, the Lord tells them that they focused on the wrong things, and they ought to be focused on the righteousness commanded in the law, not on their man-made fast days. So we need to avoid doing something like that as well. Good. Yeah, outstanding answer. And of course, we're out of time for today, so we're not going to, we have a, a number of questions still to get to from this week. But that doesn't mean you don't write in new questions. They go in the queue, we get to them. Um, unless it's completely off the wall, um, we answer the questions. So, um, and I don't know what even that would look like. But write your question and we'll figure it out as we go. But coming up on the program in the next couple of weeks, we'll have Dr. Morales. He's a new uh, professor here at the seminary. He's going to come on the program to talk uh, about what else? Biblical theology and, and his role here at the seminary and how he's using that in the classroom. And it's really great. I've had both classes with him on, on, on BT stuff. And I'll tell you what, it is fascinating um, just well, to listen to Also, remember, him. what I wanted to do was for us to do one on systematics and how we're going to approach that here at the seminary. Yep. And so, so supposed to have happened with inviting Ryan. So, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll put that in the hopper, too, as well. And then we have Dr. McGraw again coming back. He's, he's, he's on often, um, but that means he's busy writing and involved a lot of things so it's very helpful um, and he's going to talk about a, a subject that um, probably few of us think about enough and it's the subject of self-denial so um, it's a little booklet he put out in the cultivating biblical godliness series from rhb so look forward to that in a couple weeks but until then would you thank you for listening to this particular edition of confessing our hope the podcast of greenville presbyterian theological seminary and god bless